2020 World Tour season is chugging along, and we here at VeloNews.com have you covered with all of the news and race reports, photo galleries, stuff like that coming from the Vuelta España. And as you heard me talk about a few weeks ago, for fans who want a deeper relationship with their sport, we have our new Active Pass and VeloNews Pass digital membership, which brings you exclusive behind-the-scenes analysis, reporting, perspective on the racing and that is part of uh, our new digital membership that we launched earlier this year. There is the Active Pass membership, $99 a year, where you get access to all of the exclusive digital membership, as well as access to the Roll Massive Elephant Rock Grand Fondo, uh, coaching from today's plan, a bunch of cool industry deals from brands like Scratch Labs and Jordana and other brands, and a whole bunch of cool perks. And now we have the Velo News Pass as well, that is a discounted rate that gets you industry deals as well as access to all the cool stuff on VeloNews.com. We've had great stuff come out of the Giro and the Welta. Some of these U.S. rider roundtables where American riders have been sharing their perspective with us on a variety of topics. And some great analysis and behind-the-scenes reporting from Andrew Hood and James Stark on just what the heck happened at the Giro d'Italia and the Welta España. So again... It's Active Pass and VeloNews Pass, and you can learn more at VeloNews.com. Okay, let's get on with this week's podcast. Uh, welcome back to the VeloNews Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you another busy Tuesday uh, here at the VeloNews home offices. Apologies in advance for crying babies, barking doggies, and um, just, you know, the level of professionalism that we have come to expect here at the VeloNews uh, Podcast. Um, I say this, it's a, yes, a busy Tuesday. I think our busy Tuesdays are, we're counting them down now because here we are, second week, the Welts of España, the Giro d'Italia is over. The big one day races pretty much are all over. Home stretch, folks, the end of the 2020 season is in sight, which is a bittersweet thing, I feel like, for all of us. Um, it's been very difficult to cover all aspects of pro racing uh, as a cycling journalist. But we love pro racing, and so the fact that it's counting down, you got to savor it, folks. Watch every stage of the Vuelta España. Savor the racing moments. Cheer for your you know favorite riders like Mike Woods, who won today's stage, and just just drink in the sweet nectar of bike racing because it's coming to a close. Uh, on today's podcast, we are going to break down all the exciting elements from the Giro d'Italia, and we're going to talk about what's going on at the Vuelta España and just what it means in general with uh, James Start and Andrew Hood, both of whom are coming to us today from their respective homelands that are uh, imposing new COVID restrictions. So guys, um, before we get back to it, it seems like the uh, dynamics from March and April, when you guys were both in lockdown, may be returning. James, we'll start with you. What's going on in Paris right now? Yeah, well, it's, i got to say it's pretty depressing. I, I just came back from a great time at the Giro, and all of a sudden to come back to Paris and the cold and the rain and be looking at lockdown is, is, is tough. I mean, at least this, uh, this spring, the weather was breaking. The weather was gorgeous. You could, you know, have some sun coming in your window or sit on a balcony. Uh, you go out for an hour, uh, and do your shopping. Um, it wasn't that hard, but you know, it's getting dark early. It's been cold and wet and it, this is going to be really hard for a lot of people, including myself, I got to say. Um, so we'll just see. I think the, the president Macron is going to be giving some new, uh, 
new decrees on Thursday and looking at like total curfew on the weekends, maybe lockdown starting at seven at night. Uh, that's what they're floating out there. And I just um, not looking forward to this. Andy, it sounds like similar stuff could be headed your way in Spain. Now, I have serious questions about what curfew looks like in Spain because y'all don't even go to dinner until like one in the morning over there. So, um, you know, how do Spanish people deal with with early curfews? Yeah, that's right. It's going to be a crisis for everything's late in Spain, you know, late dinners, late drinks. People wake up late. Uh, there's even some talk that this might kind of reset the Spanish work week and reset some of the uh, customs to kind of bring them perhaps more in line with traditional European hours. Because it's been an ongoing kind of uh, debate really within Spanish society of having this split uh, work day. Most folks work from like 10 to 2 and then 4 to 8, you know, very impractical in a modern economy. So there's some discussion of having to squeeze all that down and become almost like Germans, which no one in Spain is too excited about. But yeah, now we're facing uh, lockdown 10 o'clock. So uh, yeah, people have to have dinner at eight. I think the rule is they stop serving serving meals at nine to get Whoa. people out of there by 10 o'clock. So, uh, you know, I remember, you know, Mama Hood, we had dinner at 5.30 in America when I was growing up. But uh, here in Spain, most people don't have dinner till 10. So it's going to be a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, if you um, try to install German-style rules in Spain, do the Germans give you three hours to get loaded on vermouth during the middle of the day on a work week? Is that part of German customs? I, I, I don't, I don't think so. No, no, no. The Germans, you know, they're nine to five. That's what they want to. They want to bring the Spanish calendar and what in sync with the rest of Europe. Perhaps we'd love to see the thirty-five hour work week in France. I mean, bring that on. <laughs> I'd like to see that. I haven't seen that, but it doesn't. And we could use that at the Villeneuve's offices. Well, guys, we have a ton of racing to get to. Let's start with Giro d'Italia, which wrapped up on Sunday. Thrilling finish. A lot of storylines coming out of it. Teo Gegenhart and Team Ineos Grenadiers wins the overall after just a dramatic final five days of racing that saw Teo and Rowan Dennis really take charge of the race on the stage up and over the Stelvio. And then two days later just detonate poor Sunweb and Wilco Kelderman on the triple ascent of Sestriere. Um, Teo sounds like he really did not come into this race thinking he was a GC contender or even a second level GC contender. And he won. You know, when you guys think back uh, in your memories of, of Grand Tour racing, when was the last time we had a guy who was seemingly so far down the pecking order uh, as a GC favorite, win a Grand Tour. Are there any Grand Tours that come to mind? I think you'd have to, uh, Andy, I think maybe you'd have to look to the Tour of Spain uh, or something. Uh, in the Tour of France, you know, we came close in 2011 with Thomas Vogler, but, you know, in the end, uh, he faded. Um, you know, I mean, even like, was it 2008 Carlos Sastre? I mean, uh, okay, maybe people didn't pick him to win, but he'd been a consistent top 10, top five finisher in Grand Tours. Uh, you can't say you were shocked by it. Um, Tao, Tao's victory was, uh, Tao's victory was, uh, just amazing, you know, uh, it was, it was wonderful. I've known him since the under 23, uh, uh, years and he's tremendous, tremendous talent and a really nice guy. Um, I was starting to worry that he was going to, you know, just getting locked into the, 
you know, just to the to the machine lockstep, you know, mentality that that Sky and Ineos have often had. Um, but obviously, uh, that that changed right here. And what it was, I thought, really interesting was that David Brailsford at the, uh, in Milan yesterday was sort of speaking like this was a revelation. Tao sort of was the way he grew into the role also. It seemed like at least, uh, you know, on the steps uh, of the Duomo in Milan, that that Brailsford all of a sudden came to a new awakening. There's a different kind of racing than just a calculated uh, defensive racing that they've been doing. And he said, you know, we've we've had a lot of success racing defensively, but really it's a lot more fun to do what we did here. And as Tao, Tao came into this, he started thinking about winning, but not just winning, but winning with style and flair, which he obviously did. It was just tremendous. I'm going to be... Really excited to see how he uh, evolves. Um, it's going to be a game changer for his career for sure. Yeah, the, the one that comes that popped to mind for me was uh, Ryder Hesdall uh, when he won the 2012 Giro. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar situation where he, uh, you know, really wasn't a, a five star favorite. Just kept hanging around, uh, and a few of the favorites kind of got dropped out of their race, similar to what we saw this past couple weeks here at the Giro. And then, uh, in similar fashion, you know, kind of won it on the last time trial in in, uh, in Milan. Uh, but yeah, typically in the tour, as James was saying, you know, it's so controlled, it's pretty hard to see a surprise winner there. We have seen a few years where a rider might get so much time in a breakaway to hang around in leader jersey for quite a long time. I remember that there was that one Giro where um, the Spanish rider, oh, his name escapes me, Lopez, maybe. Uh, Basso finally got rid of him like in the last uh, couple of mountain stages after that rider because he, he'd got that was the year that when Richie Port got into that famous breakaway across the middle of Italy 2010 one of the Spanish guys got the pink jersey and he almost won that Giro uh, out of a breakaway you know midway through the race so it, it, yeah what, what those guys did over the, over the weekend you know it was pretty impressive I mean I, I didn't I didn't really see these young guys coming in and really be able to dominate the race this Giro in the way that they did. You know, I was expecting more the Nibelis and the Garen Thomases to to really dominate this race, and it just shows that um, the young riders are coming up and and they are just pushing these old guys out of the way. Yeah, and it really signals a new turnover at Ineos Grenadiers. I mean. You touched on it, James, there about the new style of racing where for years we've seen that team style of racing is to grab an early lead and then use its armada to just defend, defend, defend and squash everyone. And this one, it's like the team's GC hopes get totally thrown out the window when Garen Thomas crashes on stage three. And then the team pivots into this exciting stage hunting mode and they win seven stages and look, chapeau to them for you know having a successful pivot. But really, it what emerges is like, this team is so strong with so many hitters that um, they had the firepower to go on the offensive for a real GC push. And I mean, I guess now is the time to talk about it. I mean, Rowan Dennis showed just earned every single one of his euros that he's getting paid this year on those two climbing stages. You know, Rowan Dennis is a guy we've written about over the years here at VeloNews.com and his long-term quest to morph from a TT specialist into a guy capable of winning Grand Tours. And it never really happened. But, you know, Neil Henderson, his coach, talked to us about these monster training days in the mountains and these year-long process to become this awesome climber. And in some of these races where he was given uh, GC leadership, it just didn't really happen from the mountains. But boy, did it happen for him in the mountains 
uh, in this race because he's the guy on the Stelvio and then on Sestriere who is able to like up the tempo to such a high level that only Jai Hindley and Theo Gegenhardt could could follow him. Like Kelderman, who's a very good climber, it was just like too hot. It was like the water was too hot for Kelderman to follow, and only. Rowan Dennis was a guy who was able to lift it to, to that level for that long a time and then kind of back off. Because in, in looking back at those stages, you could see where like the climbing tempo that Dennis was setting for Teo and for Jai was real high for like a 10-minute period of time. And that's all you needed to like get rid of Kelderman. And then both groups kind of went back to climbing at about the same tempo. But in that period, like the damage was done. And Kelderman, who on paper, we talked about it last week – he was the guy who had the, the bona fides and the experience you'd think would win this race. Um, it was too much for him. So, you know, Sky has this ragtag – well, not ragtag, but the squad that's like going for stage wins and in doing so is ra- racing aggressively and just, you know, ends up ends up winning this race. And I do think it is interesting and important to think about the future of Sky going forward. I mean, is this a strategy that they could employ – at the Grand Tours? Is this something that could work for Egan Bernal? Do you have to be kind of an unknown or an untested quantity like Teo Gegenhardt to win a race this way? I don't know. What do you guys think about this Sky Ineos Grenadiers attack style? I've been, I've been thinking about that myself um, and because I really thought the words of Dave yesterday, Brailsford, were, um, you know, really, really, uh, what can you say? They were, they were, pretty explosive really i mean after all these years and all the success being this sort of robotic team he's like all of a sudden seemed to wake up and go we can be so much more and it would be wonderful if that's the case but uh i don't know that you know what well, time will tell um part of that also might be that you know they got totally dominated by a team that rode very similar to them but much better than them at the tour this year being jumbo visma um and all of a sudden, Jumbo Visma was the team that was just riding people off their wheels, uh, including Ineos. So all of a sudden, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have that card to play. If all of a sudden they come around next year and um, they seem to have that card again, uh, maybe they'll forget about being imaginative. But they might not. And um, guys like Bernal also might have to go more on the attack, and that would be really exciting. Uh, Carapaz has already shown that he loves to attack. Um, and so maybe this is just like the, the the last thing that Brailsford needed to say, you know, there's a different way of doing it. And maybe there's a different way forward for us. It'd be really exciting if that's the case. It'll, I think it'll depend on how their own riders evolve and how the team evolves. And um, if all of a sudden they come into a grand tour and are clearly the hands down favorite or, or, you know, the strongest team and just ride, you know, guys like Kitowski are riding, you know, lead, team leaders of other teams off their wheel then they might go back into the defensive style again. But if that doesn't happen, they just might not have a choice. And, you know, hats off, it'll be a much better uh, bike race. Yeah, I think that that style of racing we saw at the Giro from from Ineos was also just a product of that race. I think they might have been racing very differently had your man there, Garen Thomas, stayed in the race, you know, had the lead in that second time trial. It might have just been the same sky train we've always seen over the years. And I think that was their plan from the beginning of the race anyway. And uh, Teo just found the legs and and really rode into a vacuum at the top of this race. There really wasn't anyone there dominating 
and putting their stamp on the race. I mean, Amida, you know, held held pink for more than two weeks in his very first Grand Tour. Nothing against him. It kind of just showed you the level of the race. It was very hard, very hot, high. The level was very high and hard, but, you know, it wasn't as deep as at the Tour de France. I think next year, the Tour Sky will come in with a very strong team. And just look who they signed going into next season. Uh, you know, Adam Yates and Richie Ports and a few others. And you get uh, Ghana and, uh, and uh, Rowan Dennis there on the flats and get a few other guys filling in some spots and, you know, I think that I think the sky train will will live on just in a different form. Uh, and as James said, you know, you got Yumbo Visma just steam plowing everybody through this bulldozing through the Peloton. And I think they'll just do that. They'll just hit the replay button on that going into next year. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting also uh, uh, just to see how these teams deal with all this young up and coming talent. I mean, this this year's Vuelta or Giro was almost like the Tour de l'Avenir, which was canceled. But you know, Almeida, uh Lindley and and, and uh Gegenhardt, you know, these are all guys that are barely out of the under twenty three ranks, right? And all of a sudden amazing success. And then you you know, on, on top of that in the tour, you know, we got we got uh we got Pogachar and how are the teams gonna deal with this? I mean, are these guys ready? to all of a sudden become five-time tour contenders, you know, big favorites going to into all the grand tours. I don't know. We saw that Bernal had a hard time uh, translating his success last year. I've already heard and talked to t- people who are saying, you know, best thing for UAE might be to not even race uh, Pogacar on the tour next year, to give him a little time to digest this and, and maybe uh, go for a different grand tour with a little less pressure. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how these teams, and these are all big teams with a lot of experience, how they, how they um, digest and how they direct and handle all this young talent that have all of a sudden found themselves with so much success so early on. Yeah, and I think what, a couple of questions come to mind too, which is like when guys like this are having this much success this early, what does it mean for their longevity just from a physical performance and motivation standpoint? Like 10 years from now, are we going to see these guys still winning or is it like – you know, their best years from a physicality and a motivation and a, you know, inspiration period is right now. And 10 years from now, they're going to be burned out. I mean, that's just a, a story to keep an eye on. Um, Andy, what do you make, though, of um, now Teo Gegenhardt versus Egan Bernal in the pecking order at Ineos? I mean, let's say they are going into the tour next year. I mean, do they does, – does this win elevate Teo into the driver's seat um, – for Team Ineos, or is this still the team of Egan Bernal, Tour de France contender? Yeah, I mean, he was on the long list for this year's tour, and they sent him off, shipped him off to the Giro instead. Uh, I still think a, a tour win's bigger than a Giro win, and especially the way Bernal has managed until this year his career. Yeah, obviously, I think he's a step ahead or several steps ahead of, of uh, Teo, but it's going to be very tough selection for that uh, Ineos tour team. They got eight, eight spots. They probably have enough guys to fill two teams, really. So they'll have to make some choices, you know, spread the wealth, you know, have some long conversations with people so that they feel like they're being properly used and uh, have the right targets to keep them motivated. Because uh, Teo certainly probably now believes he deserves a shot at the tour. You know, does that mean he goes as a protected leader? Um, I mean, half that team will be GC caliber riders. You know, who they've done a pretty good job over the past few years managing those uh, 
different interest in, in playing all those cards. And then, you know, the year, of course, we saw Garen Thomas win. You can see a scenario with that with Teo riding the fumes and then uh, coming through for the win. Um, but it's going to be very crowded at the top at Team Ineos. Grenadiers. They're, they're, they're going to need a bigger SUV to fit all those guys into. It's I, I got I to gotta say that if I was Teo right now, I wouldn't be in a rush to be doing the Tour de France. I mean, he has he, all the freedom he had in the Giro. Let him do that for another year or two. Uh, why not? You know, or, you know, just, I just, I wouldn't be in a rush. I think he can still grow and learn and he can uh, define his own role as a rider better in. Uh, in a race like the Giro of the Vuelta, uh, personally, um, that would be my thing. Uh, because and and then also because you know there's so much talent at the top of Ineos uh, next year, and so many established riders are going to be wanting to the Tour. But you know, in a you know very a couple of years, I mean, two years, uh, Dale could be easily as good as uh, you know Yates or or, or Richie uh, for that matter. At this point, you know. Um, as he's coming into his own. So we'll see, but I wouldn't be at a rush mentally or physically to be, to be uh, doing the tour. If I was him. It seems like that may not be in line with his personality. I mean, if we're to trust and believe these post-race press conferences, I mean, throughout the Giro, Teo is this just really humble kid who talked about being in awe of the stars and talked about being a kid a lot and how, you know, he wasn't going to let this win change him or change his trajectory. So I think that it will be interesting to see how he evolves from a guy who won the Giro when he was thinking he was going to be a domestique, you know, and rising to the challenge to being a guy that has a lot of pressure on your back and, you know, sort of the, the big contender team leader for a grand tour. Cause that's, that's two very different things. And, you know, even when he was on um, Hagen's Berman action, uh, a lot of times he was like one of three team leaders coming into these races. I remember interviewing him at the Tour of Utah a few years back, and it was like Adrian Costa, Teo Gegenhardt, and Nielsen Palace all going for the overall. You know, Tour California, same sort of thing. It was like, hey, you have this opportunity to present or to, to, to really shine, but it was never like this team is built around Teo Gegenhardt and his push for the overall. So how he adjusts to that level of pressure and, and honestly, the fact that he's going to be a big time celebrity after this now just the second brit ever to win the giro and he has this great story that is highly promotable and marketable by Ineos grenadiers because he's the hometown boy he's not from ecuador or from colombia he's the british guy who was part of the system who came along who you know he's been on the radar for a long time and finally like our, our process has paid off he's he's the big star so i really think it's going to be interesting to see how he adjusts to all of that, you know, I mean, before the Giro, he was going to be like talking to guys like us on the side of the uh, at, in the start line paddock, and now he's going to be mobbed by all the TV stars and you know Eurosports guy and stuff. At like the that. Giro, he was at the Giro. He was one of those guys. I mean, I was, I was at this prologue, and I was uh, I was checking out the climb at Montreal uh, on the on the TT, trying to get recon that and kind of sense. And the, and the Ineos guys came by, you know, and and who like yells out hey and turns around with a big smile on his face it's you know it's Tao I mean he's, he's just that's the way he is and as far as I know I, I I think he'll stay that way in a lot of ways he's he's not an arrogant kid um and he loves bike racing and 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 he really appreciates everybody who's involved in this what we call the family of, of cycling um and uh 
you know, he, but he's very, you know, he's still very, I, I'd be surprised if he becomes big headed. I think he's very accessible. Although he's going to, you know, like you said, I mean, a Brit that, um, that, that wins a, a grand tour, he is going to have a lot of media attention. Uh, so, you know, we'll see, but he's, he's really, I, I'm, I wish him well. I'm very happy for him. That's for sure. You know, before we bid adieu to the Giro, um, hoodie, I just have a quick question for you. What did you make of team Sunweb's strategy in these last few decisive stages? You know, they had Wilco Kelderman as on paper, the GC leader, but first on the Stelvio and then to Sestriar, it's like Jai Hindley is the better climber. Um, they made the decision to keep Jai Hindley with uh, Teo and Rowan Dennis while Wilco got dropped. Um, was it the right move? Like, what do you do in that, you know, could, should they have pulled Jai Hindley to help uh, Wilco Kelderman out? Yeah, that was an interesting quandary for that team because on paper, uh, it seemed that Wilco perhaps had the best chance to win the overall just based on how he time trials. Uh, but as we saw it play out in Milan, you know, that would not have been in the best way uh, for the team to play that car because his time trial, Wilco's time trial wasn't that great. And, uh, you know, so you, you can imagine that there were some discussions of that behind the scenes. You would hope that there was some honest, uh, you know, talking among the riders saying, you know, how, how well do you feel? Cause that, that's, I think that's one of the, the main points of uh, being uh, with the race radio is that the riders can tell how they feel during the heat of the moment. Say, Hey, you know, my legs aren't feeling great you know, go for it. You know, I'm not sure if those conversations happened in real time as they were going up uh, Sestriere and up uh, the Stelvio. But it was a, uh, you know, it was one of those situations where, you know, do you sacrifice the chance for the stage win to help a guy who might not actually even get the jersey or win the race? So I think I think they made the smart call that the sure bet was keep your best climber up the road. And it was every man for himself at that point anyway, even having a guy like Hindley, Pace, Wilco, how much time could he have actually saved? You know, it, it's it's impossible to save it. But I think, you you know, you go for, you, you send your guy up the road, get the jersey, get the stage win, whatever happens on the Sunday, you just, it's just the roll of the dice. Yeah. When you look back at, at, at that, um, they, they got, they got caught, they got caught out there kind of because, you know, when I've never seen, uh, you know, and Wilco got dropped very early on the Stelvio. He, and I mean, it's pretty amazing. That he was able to pace himself and get the, uh, at the finish. Cause he, you know, he had about two and two minutes 45, right. Go, going into the stage and he lost all but about 12 seconds of that. Uh, and you know, there's no guarantee when you come off at what six K before the Stelvio and you still got to get over the, the hardest part of the Stelvio down and then up the final climb, you're going to be able to maintain that. Um, and at the same time, he paid, yeah, but he, and he wasn't able to follow anybody's wheels. He was all on his own. I don't, I certainly don't think that if they'd held Lindley back, it was going to help much. Uh, if you look at it, he was what, uh, he lost about, a, you know, a minute, he was a minute and a half down. He couldn't have lost more than, you know, he needed to go into that last time trial, no less than 30 seconds down to, to have a, you know, clear shot at winning. And, um, and he, there's no, there, he could barely, he couldn't follow anybody's wheels. Plenty of groups came up to him. And we're going that much faster, and he couldn't even stay on the. I mean, he's just like the one speed wonder at the end of that that climbing stage. And again, kudos that he was able to maintain it. But he, I don't think that having a guy pacing him was going to gain him a lot of time. On the same hand, if Lindley had gone on the attack, that was risky too because he was going to have to take out 
be able to drop uh, Gegenhardt by at least, you know, he needed to get at least 30 seconds, 30, 45 seconds. Um, he needed 40, you know, at least 30 to 45 seconds. And going into that last TT, history tells us this. And there's no guarantee he was going to get that. So he, he could have gone and started taking pulls on, over the Stelvio or on the final climb, buried uh, Wilco and any chances for pink, not gotten the pink, not gotten the stage win, and then not been in a winning position for the final victory in Milan. It was a, it was a hard call. And, you know, even though both these riders are young and untested at this level, uh, Gegenhardt is has you know has a lot more experience and had a lot more you know track record. I was looking at their their TTs for example, and you know neither neither was a stellar TT rider, but uh, Teo's had you know he's had some good top ten performances in TTs in his in his career. So I was pretty convinced that he was gonna gonna you know win um, pretty handily in Milan. But you know they're both in such unknown territories that it was uh, it was hard for them to make these calculations. I think they probably did what they had to do and they got came out with a stage win. Came up with uh, two days in pink. You know, I'm sure it's frustrating. Uh, at the end of the day, they got the second and third. That's great, right? but uh, I'm sure it's frustrating when you're so close to victory. Scale of one to five, how many glasses of uh, grappa does this edition of the Giro get? Well, I was on most of the race and really happy to be out there. So I would drink it up because I had a lot of fun covering the Giro, discovering it at this level. I've never done so much of the Giro. I thought it was uh, I thought it was a pretty blocked race for a long time. In fact, I wrote some uh, snarky column I think on the day of the Stelvio morning, just saying, you know, when's this Giro going to start? I felt like there was so back ended with so all the stuff, hard stuff, really packed into the end of the race that uh, people were afraid to race. Mm. I mean, of course, we saw the the big rider protest uh, the next day after the Stelvio, saying, "Come on, you know." 265 Ks in the rain and a world pandemic until they go, we're not going to race this. We've been racing like crazy every day. And the Giro is, everyone says the Giro is the hardest Grand Tour of the year in terms of just how long, you know, the, the stages are longer. I mean, the Giro is kind of old school. It keeps these, uh, all the all the final stages in the last week were all over 200 K long. Whereas the Tour has been slowly morphing into almost a Welta style, a little bit shorter stages. You see, uh, in the in the tour, even 140 kilometer stages now, uh, packing the action. I mean, just the first week of the Vuelta to me was more exciting than the entire Giro. But having said that, the last two or three days of the Giro were very exciting to watch. So in the rating system, I'd give it a three. You know, three three grappa, three grappi this year. I mean, yeah, I'm going with three. I I, I share your sentiment. I was bummed to see all the big, you know, a number of GC stars bail on the race early i didn't like seeing garen thomas go down and simon yates and the fact that also like there was a just a major covid19 outbreak i mean you know the tour de france had had covid with staffers going home and christian prudhomme but this one had riders testing positive left and right and you know the stuff about the hotels and the rider protests there was sort of a cloud over this giro i'm happy to see Theo getting our win uh but um yeah it, 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 it was a grand tour. Uh, guys, let's talk quickly about the Welta before we get out of here because the Welta is heating up. Um, today was stage seven. We saw Michael Woods escape with a pretty thrilling stage win. He's off to Israel Startup Nation. Really psyched to see Mike Woods take that win. Um, but the big, um, the big dramatic stuff happened two stages ago. Rainy ascent of Formigal, which happened because uh, France closes borders, so there's no Tourmalet stage, and 
the riders had to basically, oh, hey, no more tourmalade, but we're going to Formigal in a driving rainstorm. And, you know, it seemed like Yumbo Visma kind of laid an egg because Roglic, Primoz Roglic was leading the race and then he lost the jersey. Andy, what happened on that stage and what do you make of Yumbo Visma's strategic buffoonery that allowed uh, Ineos to grab the dang red leader's jersey. Yeah, it sounded like uh, they were passing up some rain capes near the top of this penultimate climb. And remember that stage, uh, the Formigal, that was the same same route as the, the famous Frumigal stage of 2016 when Contador and Movistar all ganged up on Chris Froome and really knocked uh, Froome out of contention that day. Under very different circumstances, that was kind of like one of these raids that caught out Sky early in the early in that ra- in that stage uh, five years ago, and then uh, it was just a, 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 a drag race to the finish line, and 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 Froome ended up losing, I think, uh, three or two or three minutes, and lost him a chance for the overall. And Quintana won. Very different than what happened on Sunday. They were passing up some rain capes. Uh, I was talking to Sepp Kuss on the re- uh, rest day Monday. And he was saying that uh, the mistake they made is they had their guy passing up the rain jackets a little bit too close to the top of that last climb. He was thinking that, you know, they should have had the Swannies, you know, another 500 or even 1,000 meters lower on that climb to kind of give them a chance to put that jacket on. Because he said as they were going up to the top of the, of the – it was like a Catu summit, you know, Enios, everyone's jostling for position because they wanted to be on the front of that kind of – it was not really technical – but it was a long, wide-open, fast descent down to the valley there at the base of the final climb. And uh, Primos couldn't get his rain jacket on. And so Setup was explaining that he, Primos, and Robert Haysink were just at the tail end of the uh, peloton. And, of course, it just split open. And, you know, once word got out that Enios was already on the front, once word got out that uh, Roglic was not there, Movistar came to the front. They just started drilling it. And... Uh, Step said by the time they got to the bottom of the climb, there were a good 40 seconds, you know, between those two groups. And it was a full on, uh, uh, you know, team time trial on that valley floor, kind of a long grinding valley, get, you know, wind and rain and cold. And, and they had this, had this huge effort. Uh, Sep described it as a 10 minute race winning effort for Roglic to get across to that group. And Sep said it was too much for him. He blew up. He lost 10 minutes on the day. Roglic saved the day. George Bennett really helped tow him across. You know, he got in the in the front group, and then once the final two or three uh, Ks there at the end, he got sharp and steep. You know, he just didn't have the legs to follow Carapaz, and it was a miserable day. It was, uh, you know, in the mid-high 40s, rain, you know, some wind. So the guys were very cold at the end of a hard week. And Roglic, you know, had to spend those matches earlier in the stage and just didn't quite have enough octane there at the end of that stage. He, he, lost, he lost 40 seconds. He lost... He's 30 seconds back, uh, you know, laying an egg. Yeah, I lost the jersey, but they don't think the race is lost yet because they have this climbing time trial uh, next Tuesday where everyone thinks that uh, Roglic is going to get back a minute or more against all these climbers. Got to learn how to put on them rain jackets. That's going to be my new Velo News editor-in-chief decree for James and Andy and the rest of the staff. Got to put on those rain jackets. I mean, think of what we saw on the top of the dang Stelvio where poor Jai Hindley and Wilco Kelderman – both were just mucking around with their uh, rain capes, trying to put it on for the descent. I thought Jai Hindley was going to roll off the road because his like arm kept getting stuck in it. And look, I'll be the first to admit, I have struggled to put on rain jackets while riding, have gotten off, 
you know, just like gotten off the bicycle to put it on. But um, um, what do we make then of this GC picture at La Vuelta? I mean, Carapaz is in the lead. The Vuelta is one of the hardest races to read because there's about 16 different races inside the Vuelta. You know, the, the race for 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 the different stages and the and the uh, and the uh, the best climbers jersey and the different climbers. I mean, I was looking at you know Guillaume Martin who. Uh, he he came in looking at the GC performance, top ten, top five, got blown out on stage two, and now all of a sudden, um, uh, now all of a sudden is you know a stage hunter, and he's been in the break uh, the last three days, and now he's got the 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 the, the polka dot jersey, so he, or you know the the best climber jersey, so he's going to be going in breaks every day, and there's breaks every day in the Vuelta that get away. That's the thing. It's so like so many so many Vueltas like. The majority of stages, the breakaway stays away, and there's really like, you know, two at least two or three races within one. So it's very hard to read uh, in my books. And and when there's so many breakaways, there's also chances to for guys who maybe lost a lot of time one day to all of a sudden get themselves back in the running. Uh, so I just think it's too early to tell. Well, by the time listeners uh, listen to this podcast, Wednesday's stage will either be going on. Or it will have concluded, which could shake up the GC picture even more because the uh, race finishes a big old cat one to Alto de Moncavillo. And, you know, stay tuned to BellNews.com because we'll have all sorts of news and information from uh, from that stage. Guys, we got a couple of great interviews to get to today. First, uh, Andy Hood again caught up with Sepp Kuss. We heard from Sepp last week. Uh, now we're checking in with Sepp again. And he talks all about Rain Cape Gate and <laughs> bad situation for poor Yumbo Visma on stage five. Uh, then we hear from American Logan Owen. Logan is racing for Hugh Carthy. He's currently sitting, sitting second overall. This is Logan's second Welta. And he, of course, was part of that doomed EF team in 2019 that saw half its team crash out on the same stage. So Logan talks to us about some uh, big, big differences between the 2019 and 2020 EF pro cycling team. So Andy Hood and James Stark, thank you so much for coming on to share your most passionate takes and we will catch up with the book you a week from today. All right, let's get on to Sepkus and Logan Owen. How did it turn out for you? Obviously, probably not like you had imagined. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it wasn't uh, a perfect day for us by any means. I mean, yeah, we, we started off great. Uh, it was a... Uh, um, yeah, it was a really strong breakaway that was away, but uh, we we had it everything under control, um, and uh, we we knew that uh, that the the second to last um, or yeah the, the descent before the final climb would be a bit nervous, um, but we we also knew that we had uh, fresh rain jackets waiting for us uh, near the top, so. Uh, you know, it's, it's always hectic. One K from the top. Every everybody's moving up into position, and uh, yeah, we had bags with rain jackets, and it was a bit of a mess. Um, and so, Primo's Robert and I were were quite a ways behind trying to uh, wrestle with the rain jackets. And uh, yeah, it was it was a bit too calm of a moment for for what the situation was at the at the very front, and it was was breaking um and and i i tried to stay back with primos um and at that point i didn't know there was uh so much urgency i didn't know what was going on at the the front of the race but um by the time we got 
to the bottom of the descent. I, I think the gap was probably 40 seconds or something. So we we had to do everything we could to close it on the flat. Had to bring the the, the guys that were in the front group. We had to bring them back. And um, yeah, for for myself, I, I just exploded. Uh, trying to bridge that gap and uh, that was it for me um, but luckily luckily Primoz and George were back up in there and, and you could limit the damage so so when you guys passed up the uh, the rain jackets was it windy was it raining what was it, what was it like it was just kind of one of those situations where your jacket's flapping and you can't put it on and then suddenly Enios and Movistar are pulling on the front yeah it was I mean at least for myself, it was a situation where I could have also gone without one, but I was thinking, uh, it's, we've got everything under control. It's, it's better to, you know, not freeze on the descent. Um, you know, cause it was also cold enough where if, if you get too cold during the stage, then, then your race is over as well. So it was, um, yeah, you, you have to make the, take the risk, but at the same time in, in retrospect, uh, we, we should have, put on fresh rain jackets long before that point because we we should have known that of course it's going to be a fight over the top of the climb and and once any other team sees uh primos near the back they're gonna drill it of course so um yeah definitely a, a mistake to be sleeping at that moment what uh, so it was you primos and uh and robert and robert okay and so then yeah. you guys went down and then suddenly, I mean, how steep and technical was that descent? Was it pretty sketchy in the wet? No, it, it really was. It was a pretty uh, wide road, not really that technical. But I mean, when it's uh, when it's that wet and if the pace in the front is, is super high, then then there's going to be going to be gaps. And yeah, at, at the time, I didn't realize how far back in the peloton we were. But um, yeah, we were we were quite far back, which is uh yeah not not really acceptable to do when when uh you know you have the the race leader uh so yeah we were really on the back foot so so when you say uh when you guys got down towards the flats you took some big pulls to to try to bridge uh primos across and then you said you blew up and what happened there you just kind of like couldn't quite catch that wheel and then suddenly they were gone and you're by yourself well, I mean, the other guys did a lot more than myself. I was just, uh, yeah, trying to get up to them in the first place, and that was already a, a big effort. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's so so explosive. And then with with the cold and everything, I just didn't have anything anything in the tank. So um, yeah, it, it wasn't my my best day either. Even even if the the circumstances were better, I I think it would have been a, a day where i would have lost some time for sure so um yeah just really really blew the engine on the bottom so so then it's, it looks like you you settled into another group and then at that point it was just kind of you kind of had the feeling that you know there was no point in trying to kill yourself to continue i think what you lost like 10 minutes yeah i mean i i tried for as long as i could uh try and at least get up to the the cars of that group but um movistar where they were riding flat flat out in front um so it was uh yeah <laughs> only a losing situation for for myself um and uh yeah i mean at least we had we had primos and george up there so um yeah 
What, what was going through your mind at that moment, Sepp? Was it like, you know, uh, did you feel like that uh, you kind of blew an opportunity there? Or was it like, hey, at least we got uh, Primos in, in, the, in the place where he needs to be? Oh, I mean, I wasn't uh, too stressed, really. I mean, like we, we have uh, Primos still, and, and he's, yeah, he's the strongest guy in the race, I think. And, um, you know, that for, for us that we want to win the race with, with Primos. So, um you know, I think it was the only disappointment was that for, for myself losing time, we lost a bit of a, a tactical piece. If, if, you know, it's always better to have more guys on GC, um, cause that also helps Primo's a lot, but, um, yeah, it just wasn't meant to be. So, um, yeah, you already have to move on and, uh, you know, I, I think the, the same goal is still there though, to, to help Primo's. So. Oh, for sure. What was there any discussion on the team bus or kind of a breakdown after the stage uh, before dinner last night? Or you guys talk about it this morning? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, you know, it was definitely not a uh, not a good day. We were just, uh, well, especially Primoz and myself, we were just too too relaxed at a at a moment where it was um, uh, a bit critical. So uh, we we shouldn't have. Uh, been that far back we should have just ditched the rain jackets and gone straight to the front um but yeah also uh from from the team side maybe we we should have organized something different with uh different with getting jackets a bit earlier mm. uh well primos did manage to pretty much you know save the day didn't save the jersey but you know limited his losses 30 seconds back i mean when you look at the rest of the race uh, we were just, in fact, talking to uh, Dan Martin right now, and he, he's saying that, you know, we need to get – the climbers need to get another minute or two minutes out of Primos before that time trial next Tuesday. Is that kind of uh, what you guys are thinking as well, that you're still going to have the advantage even though you lost a little bit of time yesterday? Yeah, I think even with the, the time lost, it's, it's, not, um, it's not huge. And uh, I think under, under better circumstances – uh, Primo's is is right with those guys, or even better. Um, I mean, if if we look at it in the context, yesterday he he had to do uh, five to ten minutes of more or less uh, <laughs> uh, of race winning effort just to get up to that group. So wow. of course he didn't have anything uh, left when it came down to it. Um, so yeah, I think. In, in the mountains, we can we can still be really confident that he can get some time back, and then of course in the time trial as well, he can he can uh, uh, really do some damage there. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's it's a different situation now that we're not in the red jersey, so that also brings more opportunities. We can rest our guys a bit more, and um, yeah, play it a bit differently. Just final question: Is there a sense that? Uh... The, the, the rug might be pulled out from you guys at any day. I mean, is there a sense of like, you know, we need to get the jersey now because the race might be canceled tomorrow? Um, not too much. I mean, I think, you know, if we, it, with something like that, that's so out of your control. Um, and yeah, from everything we've heard, there's no uh, risk of that. I mean, Aside from from what uh, what regulations the government puts in place, but um, yeah, I mean it. It's also strange to <laughs> win win a grand tour that only races for uh, a week or a week and a half. So.
All right, my guest today on the Velnews podcast is American Logan Owen. Logan is racing the Vuelta España, which is uh, going on in the end of October. There's rainstorms. There's crazy racing. There's all sorts of zaniness going on. Uh, Logan, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, first of all, you, you, you talked about this before getting started. I mean, it's rest day. You don't really know where you are. You're somewhere in Spain and how that is like – that's so 2020. Like uh, – <laughs> what's it like racing right now at the end of october um in spain w- what is that like for you uh it's for me it's actually not too different because i've done a lot of cyclocross in the past so i'm used to racing around this time of year but i think for a lot of the other guys it's pretty unknown territory and i haven't raced across in years so it feels it does it does feel really weird uh, normally we're taking a break around this time and t- at home kind of off the bike just enjoying life a little bit and now we're racing full gas at a, in a grand tour and in like october november so yeah it's weird it's really weird but uh yeah just kind of rolling with the punches right now yeah because i mean in talking to a number of riders you know you had four and a half months quote unquote off due to covid but it's not like everyone just stopped training or stopped riding their bikes and so trying to keep the body fit and the brain motivated for this long and now racing full gas day in, day out. I mean, is it more of a challenge in your conversations with guys in the bunch? I mean, does it seem like it's more of a challenge for the body or more of a challenge for like the mind and the spirit at this point? Um, I think it's, it was definitely tougher for the mind. I don't think it's the body as much. I, I mean, trying to stay motivated for four months, like, with no races it's that was really really difficult and now that we're finally getting to race it's all all at once and yeah it's i don't know it was hard to stay motivated i think during that time but at least for me i'm excited to be back racing because we haven't really got to race much this year and um but it is weird that it's this late uh but the other guys that yeah i don't know i think for them it's around the same i don't know well, hey, we got a lot to get to about this uh, wacky Vuelta España. You know, uh, we're recording this on Monday, the first rest day. And yesterday on Sunday, we saw you guys tackle this rainy, cold, miserable stage that finished up to Formigal. Originally, the stage was supposed to cross into France and finish on the Tourmalet. But right, you know, right before the stage happened, day before or so, the French authorities shut things down due to COVID. And so the, the Vuelta had to completely reroute the thing. Um, take me through what it's like being inside a team when all of a sudden, you know, a stage and a series of climbs you've been planning for for a long time gets completely thrown out the window and you're delivered a completely new stage. Like, what is that like inside of the team when a big pivot like that happens? Actually, I mean, I don't think it, it wasn't too much of a change. Like, we knew it was going to be a hard stage anyway. And it became a slightly less hard stage on profile. But uh, um, I think in the end, it sh- showed things up just as much as the Tourmalade stage would have in the past. We, I mean, we we planned for one stage and this stage is, it was very similar. Um, it wasn't too much of a shakeup. So it was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't too crazy. Uh, I was excited though. It was slightly easier. So I didn't want to start on a cat one climb i'm just gonna say right now <laughs> from, from a planning situation though is it like hey you know you guys know these roads pretty well like just kind of go for it or do the ds's have to like 
redo their maps and have a new meeting and have a new, you know, like series of like strategic elements to the stage or, or is it pretty much just like you guys are pros and you know what to do? Yeah. I mean, it, there, it didn't change the plan much. Um, I think the same thing was going to happen, whether it was the original stage or the stage that we had, we ended up having, uh, yesterday. It was, there, there were very similar stages, like I said, and, uh, one was just slightly, slightly easier, but <laughs> not by much. Uh, and it, it, I don't think it felt any easier because of the way we raced it. So, yeah, uh, I don't think it didn't. It didn't really change much, to be honest. But had it been something like from a flat stage to a, a mountain stage, that would that would have really shook things up and been kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, the other big storyline going on with this Welta is the fact that. Uh, like all the other races, is going on amid COVID nineteen. Spain is having, uh, it sounds like a COVID nineteen resurgence, and the, the, it sounds like from talking to other riders, the race has been pretty good about you know keeping the bubbles intact and pe- keeping you guys sequestered. You know what's it like right now racing um, amid the the pa- the pandemic? Like, what's the biggest differences you're noticing in this Welta compared to uh, a normal Welta? um yeah i mean there's not a lot of fans um coming to the starts there's i mean there are still people coming but uh the organization is asking them not to show up but on any of the climbs any of the starts any of the finishes um which i think is it's a really good thing because of the way everything's happened this year for covid but um compared to a normal welta like we i mean i've only done it once before which was last year um there was yeah there's no fans on the roads or hardly any fans i should say and, uh, uh, yeah, we'll wear masks everywhere, sanitizers everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird vibe from the like racing during all this. Uh, yeah, it's hard to explain. It's just, we all, we have a bigger thing to worry about in the world right now. And we're trying to do the best we can right now, uh, with bike race. So I don't know. We're just, we're just taking, taking it the best we can. I don't know. It's, a uh, Different. In talking with Americans at the Giro, they talked about how, yeah, you know, like there was the fans were being pretty good and the organization was good at keeping fans away, but they were a little turned off by the hotel situation and felt like, hey, you know, we're standing in hotels that are packed with like tourists and stuff like that. And I mean, what's your assessment of um, just the bubble in general at the Welta? Are you you feeling pretty safe and secure? Yeah, I'd say for the most part, we've only had one hotel where I think it was a little bit iffy um the bubble getting kind of uh broken a little bit uh but every for the most part every hotel and everywhere we've been it's been pretty pretty tight and packed so i don't think uh there hasn't been a lot of options for outside um people to kind of get in and ruin ruin our little bubble that we have Mm -hmm. (laughs) um no it's been i think it's been pretty good i think they've done a really good job so far what's uh what's the chatter like inside the peloton right now when you're rolling around and talking with guys you know on other teams and you know other english speakers or americans is it people talking about the pandemic about what it's how weird it is to be racing this late in the season like what's the what's sort of the social chatter like inside the peloton uh well currently we haven't been doing a lot of talking i'm not gonna lie yeah first because it's not been (laughs) talking talking speed we've been uh racing full gas but i think for the most part, I think it's just the fact that we're racing this late. It seems a lot, really weird to a lot of people. Um, and I think some people are motivated. Some people aren't. Um, 
I'm motivated. I'm enjoying it. But I think a lot of there's some other guys in the Peloton that are uh, kind of over it and just kind of want to end their season after a long year. So I think that's the biggest thing right now. Um, but uh, yeah, we haven't been doing a lot of talking. Let's <laughs> really. So the, it's just been it's been flat out then. Uh, yeah, there's been one day where it was slightly easier, but um, every pretty much every day has been been full gas racing. So last year, you guys that uh, you read for EF Pro Cycling, you came into the race with you know pretty big ambitions, and then like lost half your team on one stage when everybody crashed out. It was a huge bummer. Um, now this year, you have Hugh Carthy sitting in second place overall and looking really strong. Um, how does that change the overall mood uh, inside the team? You know, going from last year where it was real tough setback to this year where you have a guy who's looking really strong and and way up there. How does it feel different? Uh, given that situation, well, we've actually kind of had a little bit of a roller coaster with like Woods and Danny crashing on the stage one. Um, I went down with Danny when he uh, when he crashed and he just landed really weird and he ended up hurting his ankle pretty bad, so he lost a bunch of time and then uh, ended up having to drop out because of it. And so he was our main he was our main guy for the GC. We really wanted to see what he could do. And uh, having having lost him, and then having Woods lose a bunch of time on the first first day. I mean, he wasn't the big GCT ambition. Um, Mike wasn't at the time. He's more looking for stages, but he also was another card to play potentially on the GC, depending on how how he was feeling, how he was riding. Um, and to have Hugh kind of step up and fill that fill that role is it's uh, it's pretty awesome to see. And so now we're uh, <laughs> we went from feeling like we lost kind of our main um, ambitions with the GC not really lost them but we felt like maybe we had less of a chance so but I mean he's been killing it this week he's he's riding so so strong like it's so impressive to see him do that so um, hopefully we can help him uh, help him all the way to the end and uh, maybe he can uh, come away with a win how does that change the level of stress within the team though uh, I mean, from the beginning, I think Hugh, Hugh planned on doing the GC and we talked about it before the race, but he was always kind of, um, he was just going to try and see how it went. It wasn't, we had, he has no pressure on him. And I think we're still kind of taking it in that same scenario because it's, I mean, he's just trying, this is the first time really trying to go for GC in a, in a Grand Tour. So, um, I mean, we're not going to like put so much pressure on him because it's his when it's his first time doing it, like um, I don't think Wanda or Ken feel feel like they need to put pressure on him because he's yeah it's his first time. So we're just kind of rolling with punches and um, taking it day by day and just trying to help him as much as possible. And in the end, is like we're going to do the talking. Well, hey man, thanks again. I'll let you get back to it, but um, yeah. you know, good luck thanks, and I'll be in touch. Man.